They conveniently let the man get away. They conveniently let the man escape his own accountability. And this detail is so important for us as a church to pay attention to. Because what we see often is that same pattern of behavior that the Pharisees have. We're very quick to condemn and to marginalize those who have sinned or those who have been hurt by another person or those that have engaged in a way that is not reflective of who God is. And yet, we like to be picky about who is held accountable to their wrongdoing. Hola, y welcome to Femas Faith. I'm Erika Reynoso, a church kid and pastor's kid raised in Iglesia Pentecostal, hoping to share encouragement and compassion to struggling church kids like myself. Thanks for joining me on today's episode. So in my last episode, La Iglesia Medio, the purpose of that episode was really to reach those that have been hurt by the church, those that have had experiences that have distanced them from the church and from God. In this episode, I want to really target the church and speak to the posture that the church should have when it comes down to church hurt. Because over the last year in particular, on social media, I see a lot of believers engage with this topic of church hurt, but not in the way that I think is true to who Jesus is. Because the way that Christians, the way that believers engage with this topic of church hurt on social media is one of pointing fingers, of criticizing, of belittling, and of invalidating the experiences of those that have been hurt by the church. And really, that's really the only context I have of the church's response to church hurt, uh, because it's what I've seen on social media. And that's really what's been driving me in wanting to speak about church hurt, because the church only engages with this topic to defend the church, to stand up for the church. And in so doing, you're marginalizing the people that have been hurt, the people that have been hurt that have these stories, you're not creating a space for them to connect and receive the care that they need. And so in writing this episode, my biggest hope has been that those who are believers, those who go to church, those that in some way have engaged with this conversation in a way that belittles the experience of others, I want to encourage you to really open your mind, open your heart, and allow God to help you understand the depth of this topic and really the opportunity that God creates to restore and to heal when we are open to engaging in these hard conversations. And I speak confidently about this because I myself was someone that when I heard the phrase church hurt, I would be ready to fight. I'd be ready to defend the church. I used to be ready 
to just invalidate whatever people were saying was saying because I thought it was my duty to defend the church. And really, as I have taken the time to understand why that was the response that I would have, what I came to understand was since becoming a Christian, I started going to church since I was five years old. I was taught from an early age that I represent the church, that I represent Jesus. And so in doing that, I had to represent him well. I couldn't allow my behaviors and my actions to misrepresent Jesus. And so I felt that weight of representing the church well. And then when I became a PK, it only got stronger when not only was I representing Jesus and the church, I was representing my dad's ministry. And so I did everything to represent the church well. And as I've grown older, I look back and I think something that God has revealed was also that as a teenager and a young adult, as I pursued really being this perfect image of a Christian, there is this perfectionism. And in that perfectionism, I saw how much fear there was within me. Because, yeah, I did hear this message on this side. Hey, you need to represent Jesus well. You are the church. You need to be an image of God. And then on this other end, you know what I also saw? I saw that when leaders in the church, worship leaders, pastors, and just any, you know, other church members, I saw that when they, you know, fell in some kind of sin that um, looked like a big fall to the church. Uh, you know, it's, and there's this like phrase that se cayó de la gracia or se descarrió or any kind of um, shortcoming that we saw in these believers. What I saw growing up was that the church's response was not empathetic, it was not compassionate, it was not loving. Because when I saw church leaders fall, what I saw was chisme and criticas, gossip and criticism. And I saw this at a young age as an adolescent. And so what did my adolescent brain do? It registered all everything that I was seeing and really unlocked a new fear. It unlocked this fear that if I mess up, I'm not gonna get compassion. I'm not gonna get love. What I'm gonna get is criticism and judgment and condemnation. And so throughout these years where I have said, oh, I'm representing Jesus, I'm representing the church. Underneath that, there was this fear and there was this perfectionism like driving that behavior. This fear that if I mess up, not only am I misrepresenting Jesus, I'm also going to get backlash from the people who I um, share with. And so, you know, I'm sharing all this because I want you to understand that when I stood up and defended the church and said, you know, when people said the church hurt me, my response would be, don't blame the church for what a couple people did. What was going on behind the scenes in my brain 
was the self-righteousness of, I'm doing what I need to do to be a good image of God. And I felt this self-righteousness of, how dare you come for the church? When I saw what I was doing, the work that I was doing to represent Jesus and the church well. And so I would get so defensive because of my self-righteousness. I was doing everything well. But on the other end, this sense of fear that I didn't want to be seen as a person messing up because I knew the response that I would get when I did fall. And so as God has helped me understand this, what he has shown me is that we get so defensive. Christians get so defensive about things like talking about church hurt. And if there's anything that we see in the Bible is that defensiveness is not a fruit of the spirit. In fact, defensiveness and like, you know, getting ready to fight when it comes down to things like this, in reality, it challenges and contradicts the fruit of the spirit and some of the teachings that Jesus gave us. And I think it's important for us to understand that. When we're getting defensive about something as a church, we need to pay attention. Why are we getting defensive? Because a lot of people like to call it, um, uh, what's that word in Spanish? Oh, um, it, like a holy anger, right? A lot of people like to say that. I'm going to think, of, I'm going to remember about it in, in a second. I'm going to be like, dang, why can't I remember it? But um, like, yeah, we, we say like, no, this, it's like, it's a holy anger, right? But is it? <laughs> Or is it really just self-righteousness that we're calling holy? Or is it really just our own fears and perfectionism coming out to defend and protect ourselves? And so, and I say that because that is what I have lived. And so let's just begin as a church first by saying, by checking our defensiveness. Check our defensiveness. Why do we get defensive? And allow God to help us understand and get to the deeper parts of that defensiveness so that we can be free of it. Because when we serve a God that can fight um, battles and win them, why do, we have, why do we stand up to defend something when God is our defender? So first, let's check our defensiveness as a church when it comes down to topics that like unsettle us. But second, I think it's important, the church is really great at preaching unity, right? Like the church needs to be unified. But what we see is that the church maintains unity in the good, but when something bad happens, all of a sudden, they're not a part of the church, or all of a sudden, we become unaffiliated with those who messed up or those who did wrong. And I think that's something that as a church we need to learn from, because who would we be as believers if Jesus was like that? Like, who would we be if Jesus was unified with the church, but the moment we mess up, he's like, eh, you're not mine. Can you imagine? I would be nowhere. I wouldn't be here. But Jesus not only invites us into salvation, he also invites us to sit in those difficult, uneasy, unsettling situations so that we can allow him to glorify himself because he's given us the tools that we need to, to walk through conflict, through, to walk through situations that happens within our church. 
And I think that by acknowledging and addressing that which happens within our church, that which is not great, the bad, the ugly, the hurt, the harm, when we address it and acknowledge it, we're inviting God to come in and to sanctify us in a deeper and more needed way. And, you know, we like to detach ourselves from people that misrepresent um, the church or, you know, if somebody in our church messes up and hurts someone, we like to, you know, set them aside and, and, and say, no, they don't represent the church. But, you know, we look at Paul and the an- analogy that he uses is that the church is like a body and every part, every body part has its own function. And so whenever I hear this phrase of, you know, don't blame the church for the actions of a few individuals, or, you know, people say, yeah, the church is filled with imperfect people, and that phrase is used to continue to perpetrate harm and hurt in the church. When I hear that, what I'm hearing is people trying to say, hey, we're the body of Christ, but don't blame the fist for punching you. Or, hey, we're the body of Christ, but don't blame the foot for kicking you. You know, like at one time I remember hearing, <laughs> hearing this little kid say, hey, you know, he punched someone, right? And when I asked him, like, what'd you do? He's like, uh, he ran into my fist. I'm just like, what? And so I think it's important for the church that when someone messes up, when those few imperfect people are harming others, we need to remain unified, but not to continue perpetrating harm, but rather for us to address that person that is continuing to hurt people, to address those people that are continuing to harm others with their words and actions, and for us to do what God has called us to do, and that is to care for one another and to hold each other accountable for the things that we do. And I think we can remain unified as a church in the good and in the bad, when we learn how to repent, repair, and restore the harm that is done, when we, can, when we develop healthy conflict resolution within the church. You know, I think it saddens me. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, and at every corner you're going to see a church that's just getting started, or a new church here, new, in particular, entre los Latinos, right? There's like a million Latino churches in, in Charlotte. And something that I have asked myself is, I wonder how many of those churches were planted or were opened because there was some kind of conflict that wasn't resolved in another church, and then, so they decided to just leave, right? As a church, if we continue to like not resolve conflict in a way that honors God, we're going to continue to see these patterns of harm and hurt. And we're going to continue to distance people from the church. And I think first we need to learn how to hold the perpetrators of harm accountable to their actions. There is forgiveness for them and there is restoration, but there's also accountability. And two, we need to care for the people who have been harmed. And so when we hold those two tensions together, we're able to really reflect what Jesus wants for his people. And I know that um, if you've ever led a church, 
service. Um, I've done it myself, but one of the phrases that is most often quoted when people are leading church services, porque donde hay dos o tres reunidos, allí está él. Wherever there are two or three um, united, God is there, right? And it's always quoted, right? Like, yeah, we're going to worship together because where two or three are together, God is there. And one day I got curious. I was like, what is the context of this Bible verse? Because it's always used in church services to encourage worship. But I went back and I looked. And Jesus said this in the context of what to do when you're resolving conflict. What to do when someone has offended another person. And I just, on one end, I was like, <laughs> we've taken that Bible verse so out of context. Yes, it's still true. God is there, right? But when you look at it in the context that it's in, I think it empowers me as a Christian to believe that God is not afraid of conflict. In fact, in the midst of it, he is there because he wants to find peace and he wants to resolve it. And so I'm going to read it for you just so you understand Um, what Jesus called this to do when someone has hurt another. This is Matthew uh, 18, 15, 20. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. I also tell you this, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. So when we look at the context of that phrase that's always taken out of context, in reality, what Jesus was inviting us to do was to engage with the person that has sinned against you and give them an opportunity to confess their sin and to repent and to restore uh, what was done. And if not, if it wasn't done privately, you had to go with two or three other people, right? And if that person still didn't repent, then on a community level, that person had to be addressed. So there was a sequence to what to do when someone sinned against you. And for me as a believer, I read that and it gives me hope. It gives me hope to know that Jesus had already thought about the conflict that was going to happen in our lives now as believers. And he gave us the tools necessary to resolve conflict. And so when we believe that and we truly accept that Jesus has called us not to brush conflict under the rug but to really address it and face it and find ways to repair harm and to restore what has been broken. He is there to glorify himself in our lives and in our churches. 
And so as a church, if we want to be unified in the face of conflict, in the face of difficult situations, we need to understand what Jesus is calling us to do in the midst of that conflict. Otherwise, if you feel like conflict is a threat to you as a Christian or a threat to you as a church, I want to invite you to read Matthew 18 and understand that Jesus knew that conflict was going to be something that we encountered because we are human and we do mess up. But he's equipped us with what we need to be able to reflect his character even in those nasty situations. Okay, so let as a church, let's stay unified. Let's not just say, oh... You know, don't blame two or three people for, you know, some. don't blame the church for something that two or three people have done. No, as a church, we need to say it is true. Within our church, there are people that are hurting and let's, let's hold them accountable to their actions and let's care for the people that have been hurt because Jesus has already equipped us to do that. And in so doing, I think that that is really what God wants to do to continue to sanctify us. Now, the next thing I want, I feel like the the church, the posture that the church should have is something that Paul said in Romans 12, and that is to cry with those who cry. Llorad con los que lloran. It's a very small phrase, but I think the church needs to understand that when Paul said to cry with those who cry, that doesn't come with prerequisites. You know, coming from a culture where if you're crying, you're told to stop, or if you're angry, you're told to stop, <laughs> you know? Um, in a culture where like emotions are often not welcomed or not dealt with in a healthy way. And especially if you've been disciplined in the way where like, you know, I've heard parents, you know, castigan a sus hijos, they, they punish their kids. And then the parents will say, uh, while their kid is crying, will say, ¿Quieres que te dé algo para, para que llorar? You know, it's like, do you want me to give you a reason to cry? It's like, uh, the crying is not um, validated. And I think we sometimes unconsciously bring this into our walk with God as a church, where we want to see if the reason why somebody crying is really worth it, right? Like, is it, does it really, is it really a valid reason for them to be crying? Like, is it really worth you to cry about this? Or like, is the reason why you're crying, like, is that really what happened? And that's where like gaslighting begins to happen, right? And I think that Paul, he didn't say, check first that it's a worthy cause for you to be crying so that you can cry with your brother and sister. No, he didn't say that. He said, cry with those who are crying. And I think when we have this posture, what that does to us as believers, it allows us to connect with those that are hurting. It allows us to be able to extend a compassionate word to give them loving care to the people that are crying. Because in reality, that is what's going to invite them into healing. And so when Paul says, cry with those who cry, it requires that we check our heart. Are we being defensive? Is our intention to correct somebody? Is our intention to get somebody to just stop crying? Because what Paul invites us to do is to cry with them. Cry with them. And what we often see is when somebody says, hey, the church hurt me, and they're hurt, 
believers, instead of crying with them, instead of, you know, really suffering with them, what they do is like, ah, oh, you just, you need to roll up your sleeves and get back in it. Oh no, you can't be doing that. Oh, don't think about it that way. Oh, don't. And just, there is no sense of crying with those who are crying. And I think Jesus shows us an excellent example of this. You know, it's one of the most popular verses and the shortest verses in Spanish. Juan 11.35, Jesús lloró. Jesus wept. And, you know, the reason why Jesus cried is very unclear. The Bible doesn't specify why he cried. And I've heard different explanations, right? I've heard people say that he cried because they, were, they didn't believe in him. And I've heard people cry, say that he cried because he was sad that his friend had, had died. And um, I think regardless of the reason why he cried, the most important thing for us to realize is that he showed up and he wept. He showed up and he cried with those who were crying. They were mourning a death. They were, he was mourning the death of his friend. Even though he knew he was about to resurrect them, he knew. He knew the power that he had. And yet he still cried. Like, can you imagine what the impact would have been if Jesus showed up and be like, y'all need to chill. Y'all have no reason to be crying because I am. Like, what would have been the impact if Jesus showed up to that funeral like that? But I think Jesus takes the time to cry with those who cry because he realizes that whatever reason that they're crying for, it's important enough for them to really be distraught and heartbroken about it. And so I think when the church disregards the harm that is done within its four walls and sees people crying and really just invalidates them or really just say, hey, you're not really hurt. You just wanted an excuse to go back to the world. When I hear things like that, it really disappoints me because the church is ready to correct and unavailable to connect. Like we need to connect with those that are hurting and cry with them so that the power of God can really do the work of healing and restoration in their life. And I think that, um, you know, kind of going off of that, the next thing I, I, I think that the church needs to learn to do is to follow Jesus' example of standing with the marginalized. Because too often in our churches, the people that are hurt, you know, they leave. And then those people that leave are marginalized. Like I said earlier, right? Um, people that have, you know, sinned in the church. What often happens is that the response from the church, the lack of support, the lack of care, the chisme, the critica, the condemnation that they get within a church, it hurts them. And that is what leads them to leave the church. Because in a moment of their weakness, they didn't receive care. They received the opposite. They were hurt by their fellow brothers and sisters. And so oftentimes, the people that have left the church, the people that are hurt by the church, are the ones marginalized by the church. And we need to understand that Jesus is with the marginalized. Through all of his life, he always sought out the people that were marginalized. I think about the woman that was caught in adultery and the, you know, the Pharisees brought her before Jesus. And they wanted to test Jesus and say, hey Jesus, what, what are we supposed to do with this, with this woman, right? 
because Jesus, you know, he practiced um, their religion. He went to the temple. He sought God, and he was a faithful. In in his time, Jesus was a faithful churchgoer. Um, if you think about, you know, the temple and the Jews and um, the people who practiced Judaism back then, like he was a faithful churchgoer in his context. And so the Pharisees bring this woman who was caught in the act of adultery and ask him, hey, what are we meant, what are we supposed to do with her? And what Jesus did was he defended that woman because what Jesus saw was the Pharisees, they, they missed the message of the law. And they were so drunk in power that they used the law to harm and to hurt and to marginalize people who needed God, who needed his love. And so Jesus stood up with the woman. And I've heard this, I've heard this, this um, passage, this story a million times. But, you know, I went back and I looked in Leviticus. What, what is the law that was being referred to? And we see Leviticus 2020. I'm going to read you what Leviticus 2020 says. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. So in this law, both of them are supposed to be stoned. Both of them were condemned to death under the law. And pay attention to this detail. It calls the man and the woman to justice according to the law. And if you go back and you remember, the Pharisees caught the woman in the act. Meaning, she was with the other man. But what did the Pharisees do? They only brought the woman. They conveniently let the man get away. They conveniently let the man escape his own accountability. And this detail is so important for us as a church to pay attention to. Because what we see often is that same pattern of behavior that the Pharisees have. We're very quick to condemn and to marginalize those who have sinned or those who have been hurt by another person or those that have engaged in a way that is not reflective of who God is. And yet, we like to be picky about who is held accountable to their wrongdoing. And this is important for us as the church to recognize is that Jesus, he cared for that woman and he was with her because she was marginalized by the church of his day. And for us as a church, what that calls us to do is that when we are in these situations where there are people that are harming others, there are people that are sinning, we cannot conveniently have some people receive their accountability and others to get away with it. Because that's really what I'm seeing in churches. 
There are people in churches that continue to harm, continue to hurt, continue to use their words to hurt others. And people are living because of that one person. And that one person is not held accountable. And as a church, we need to realize that any time and any time that we allow people to continue to sin and we don't hold them accountable, I'm not telling them stone them <laughs> like then the story. No, 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 no. There is a way to hold them accountable in a gracious and loving way through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But as a church, we need to care for the marginalized. And we also need to make sure that we're not the one marginalizing them. We need to make sure that we are caring for those that have been harmed, for those that continue to be picked at by other people that are self-righteous, that are like to choose me at, and we need to care for them. And so I think that if we as a church follow Jesus' example of standing with the marginalized, we're going to see so much fruit of the restoration that comes through that. And I just want to wrap up with something that's important for us to say. And that is that, you know, we don't, you know, as a church, we don't like talking about these hard conversations because it makes us feel uncomfortable. And that's normal. But oftentimes people don't like talking about situations like this because they feel like they're taking away from God's glory or like we're marring the image of the church. And I think first we need to understand there's nothing that can take away from God's glory. I mean, Jesus himself se despojó de su gloria. You know, he came to earth being God himself, and he set his glory aside because he knew that from it he was going to be able to save us and with his salvation bring us into his family. But also, I think that we believe that sometimes the church believes that it's our, our job to protect the image of the church because the church should have this perfect image. Well, not even the Bible does that. Look at most of the letters that the apostles wrote. They were not a pat on the back to the church. Paul, he was, he was straight with the church. He would be like, I'm so impressed at how quickly you have left the the doctrine that I taught you. Like, if you look through those letters, they were of correction to the church because the church was messing up. And not just the apostle, God in Revelation, when he, they write, when he writes those seven letters to the churches, of those seven, four of them were letters that were directed to correct the church. And I think it's important for us to recognize that, yes, as a church, we're pursuing holiness. We're pursuing sanctification through him. But that doesn't mean that we're perfect. And in so doing and recognizing that, we understand that within our church, within their community, there's going to be harm and there's going to be hurt and we can't shy away from it. We need to address it and acknowledge it and invite restoration into it. Because I don't think that this generation is expecting a perfect church. Nobody's expecting perfect Christians. I think what this generation wants more than anything is for the church to be authentic and recognizing, hey, we are not perfect, but we serve a perfect God who has given us 
guidance and tools to resolve conflict and we're going to pursue conflict resolution we're going to pursue restoration in a way that honors his name and in so doing inviting those that are hurting into healing and inviting those who are hurting others into repentance and restoration so that we can better reflect who jesus is and I think the most important warning I have for the church is that when we don't acknowledge hurt, when we don't acknowledge what's happening within our churches, the enemy loves that and takes advantage of it. Because what the enemy is doing is that he's taking that and he is planting these seeds in the hearts of people in this young generation to distrust the church, to distance themselves from the church, and to completely become so disillusioned with the church that they don't want to return. And that's why I am filled with hope, but I'm also filled with this desire from God that he began to equip the leaders in our churches to understand and address conflict in a way that allows God's name to be glorified and that allows this generation to understand that what God wants is restoration. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at FMSFaith and subscribe to this podcast. Your following and sharing helps spread this message of hope and compassion. Gracias y hasta luego.